0: Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're talking about FEI's Corporate Financial Reporting Insights Conference. This is an annual conference held every November, although like so much else this year, they went virtual, spreading sessions over three weeks. As of the time of this recording, they're just past the midpoint, but since the FASB and SEC have already presented, we wanted to bring you a real-time update. I'm joined today by Valerie Wyman and Kyle Moffitt, both partners in PwC's national office. Kyle recently joined PwC from the SEC, so he has a unique vantage point to provide us with some insights. They've been our eyes and ears at this year's conference, and I'm excited to hear what they've come back to report. Kyle and Val, thank you so much for joining me today for our podcast on the FEI conference. And I know this is a topic a lot of people are interested in, but it's sometimes hard for people to carve out time to attend the conference, even though obviously it was virtual this year. So... Maybe just to kick things off, Val, can you orient the listeners by letting us know exactly what the conference was this year, format, et cetera?
1: Sure, Heather. It's their annual conference. They'd spread it out this year over the course of three weeks. So over the last two weeks, they've had two sessions a week and next week they'll have two more. Last week, the sessions were focused on diversity and inclusion, business continuity. They had separate sessions with the FASB chair and the technical director. And then this week we heard from the SEC staff on a panel, as well as the Audit Committee Best Practices, which our partner Paula Loop participated on. There was also a really interesting session with a chief economist who was talking about what the future of the U.S. economy looks like post-election and the risks to growth and recovery. Uh, Next week is very much forward-looking. They have sessions on finance transformation, digital transformation, and the workforce of the future. And they also have a session on ESG from one of the SASB board members.
0: With that, let's start with the FASB because obviously directly applicable to this audience. And I know that this is Rich Jones's first time participating in this meeting since he just came on as the FASB chair in July. Did he share anything in terms of priorities or potentially where he sees the board going?
1: He did. And I have to think that this is probably one of the larger audiences that he's presented to being he has been on board for such a short period of time. So it felt very much like an introduction. He's done a lot of outreach. He left the technical details to his technical director, but he did speak more about his philosophy. Um, he emphasized several times that he's interested in stakeholder outreach and in active listening. He wants as much input from as many sources as possible. And he spoke about how he's really focused on the cost benefit and being transparent about that. He spoke about what it calls his principles of change when it comes to driving his agenda. And what are those principles? Basically, he thinks you need to have standard setting when it provides users with better information, uh, when you can fix unnecessary cost and complexity. And he was pretty specific about unnecessary cost, acknowledging that sometimes it does take a bit of effort. Uh, and then also the FASB is responsible for maintaining the codification. He's focused on when similar transactions are accounted for differently. He also highlighted that it's really important that when you propose something that you are able to articulate the case for change relative to those criteria. So
0: Val, it's interesting hearing that because I know that there have been some questions from users in terms of this focus on cost-benefit, and it, it will be interesting to see how he incorporates user feedback and other feedback as they look at the agenda going forward. Any other insights that he gave in his discussion?
1: Maybe there are two points I would mention. The first is about the role of the FASB related to ESG disclosures. And he basically said that if it doesn't generate a journal entry, that in his view, it's not really the purview of the FASB, which is focused more on financial reporting and not on those broader measurements. He acknowledged that the FAF is interested in that area, but I took it you know, as something saying that we shouldn't expect to see anything on ESG coming on the SASB agenda anytime soon.
0: So Val, it's interesting. This is another topic you and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about because um, since you are directly involved in us responding to the SASB on a recent request that they have out and the IFRS Foundation has a proposal out for comment and just we see a lot of activity in this area. So it definitely will be interesting to see that given, again, all the stakeholder interest in this type of data if this is something that the FASB does change its stance over time on. So hopefully more to come. And then Val, you mentioned though that there were two things. What was the other one?
1: So the second one is that he had heard criticism about the movement of post-implementation review responsibility from the FAF to the FASB. And I think there was a lot of criticism that perhaps that was like the FASB reviewing its own work. So he did address that head on. Obviously he's aware of the concerns, but he spoke about being confident in the board's ability to be objective. I mean, first he says that what you really want is a board who is able to objectively look at standards and that's part of their core mission. And they do that for any standard that's currently effective. And secondly, he pointed to the fact that there's been significant turnover at both the board and the staff level. So he feels like that objectivity is going to be fairly easy to accomplish.
0: Val, in the format of these sessions, is there a Q&A or is it him literally just giving you know a presentation to the audience?
1: It was Q&A. So there was a moderator who asked questions. He obviously had um, sort of his agenda of topics he wanted to cover. But for example, the ESG question came from an audience question.
0: And then how about even this implementation review or, or actually even questions on the agenda? Were there any pointed questions from the audience or anything that you would highlight?
1: No, I think maybe the question on post-implementation review might have been, I'm just trying to think back to the session, but I think that might have been already on his agenda. Okay, got it.
0: So then why don't we move next? You mentioned that we also heard from the technical director, who's also new, and that would be Hillary Salo. And I'm guessing that she gave a consistent message, but what would you highlight from her remarks?
1: So Hillary started in August right after Rich did, uh, and they're definitely aligned in their priorities. She's very interested in outreach and in getting feedback. And the timing of when they spoke, they both spoke about their priority in supporting stakeholders. They both pointed to being responsive to stakeholders and their needs in the current environment. And that, from her standpoint, meant the focus on delaying the effective dates. Rich was actually clear that if... Uh, a good standard isn't good if it can't be adopted well. So that's why they were so focused on the effective dates. And that prospectively, they'll continue to consider that. So looking at longer exposure periods and implementation dates as needed, or if there's an urgent need to accelerate effectiveness, uh, if there's going to improve the cost-benefit equation.
0: And then Val, for this audience, I'm sure they would be interested to know if she mentioned
1: anything on the current projects She did. She gave an overview of recent releases and their current projects, and then an outlook for the rest of the year and beyond. She spoke specifically about the Goodwill Project. I know there's a lot of focus on that one. She gave a brief history and obviously discussed the options that are being considered, which... Obviously, you can stay with the current model, which is the impairment model. You can return to the amortization model. But she also spoke to something she called an evolving model, which was something I actually hadn't heard of before. That's where you would assess impairment only for the first couple of years, maybe three after an acquisition, and then after that, start an amortization model, but continue to look at it for impairment.
0: Hmm, That is interesting. And this is another topic I know a lot of people are interested in, especially given the fact that ISB also has a project on their agenda. So looking at where the two boards are going with this. But Did she give any specific next steps with respect to Goodwill?
1: So the board's actually uh, meeting next week. So at that public meeting, they'll discuss it then. But she did say that it would be a focus for the board in early 2021.
0: All right. Well, more to come on that, it sounds like. And then, Val, I know another project that's out there where we've gotten a lot of questions is segment reporting. Any comments
1: on that? Also a common topic. Uh, She did touch on it. They talked again about that the last few meetings, the staff was really charged with doing outreach and coming back in early 2021 one with more definitive views they're focused specifically on the disclosure of significant expense categories by reportable segment there was an audience question about whether they were going to take on uh, the aggregation rules and her view is that they really needed to have sort of defined milestones that they could achieve so right now they were really just focused on the expense categories interesting and then val how about what other types of updates did she have uh, she mentioned interim reporting uh, they're focused on improving the effectiveness of of disclosures. And they spoke about adding a principle to ASC 270 to require the disclosure of significant events and transactions that have a material impact. But here again, the staff is doing outreach and research and is set to come back to the board, probably on this one in the next few months. She also mentioned uh, the exposure draft on revenue contracts acquired in a business combination. Uh, They expect to have that done by the end of the year. There's a staff Q&A that's coming out on disclosures related to government grants, as you and I have mentioned in some other forums. There's no direct uh, you know, gap requirement on that at the moment. And then she also mentioned uh, Cecil Roundtable uh, in early 2021, which is actually the first time I had heard about that.
0: So Val, to the point you just made on the government grant guidance, I do think that will be of great interest given the fact that we don't currently have anything in U.S. GAAP. So even some disclosure guidance, I I think, will be helpful and welcomed. One, though, I'm interested in is you reference an exposure draft on revenue contracts and something I also had heard talked about, but our audience may not be that familiar with it. So if you could just give a kind of quick overview of what's being proposed.
1: Sure. She did mention that it would change recognition and measurement for customer contract balances in acquisition accounting. So the acquirer would recognize a liability for the customer contract that's assumed in a business combination if it represents a performance obligation. And that would be as defined in the revenue standard. And they'd recognize it in accordance with ASC 606 as opposed to at fair value. So that would be a shift. So obviously more to come on that when the exposure draft comes out later this year.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that's something uh, people should focus on when it comes out because I think there's going to be a lot of interest given the fact that it's actually breaking from this traditional, you know, BizCon model that we've had in place for quite some time. So, sounds like something to look out for. Maybe with that then, I know that gave us a good overview of the FASB. Kyle, we also, um, I also understand that the SEC spoke and in particular that the chief accountant gave a virtual fireside chat and then that was followed by a panel discussion with two of OCA's deputy chief accountants. So maybe can we start things off by talking a little bit about what OCA is currently focused on?
2: Sure. You know, Sagar did spend some time kind of rehashing and talking about some of, of what we already heard or what uh, Val already covered with respect to the FASB's agenda. But really, at a high level, he he focused on their oversight role, their, the structure of the office, the work that they do, the new leadership. Of course, there are three new uh, deputies in the office, and so talked briefly about that. And I think with respect to priorities, um, he mentioned ongoing engagement with with companies and their representatives on just the challenges they're facing in this current environment so um, I think that's that's something they expect to continue to do um he also referenced uh, his statements um, you know that he published or, or posted over the last year and and I think we're most all of us are familiar with you know the ones on the COVID, of course the high quality financial reporting, the two that that he published there. There was also a statement that he referenced with respect to the importance of the role of the audit committee, and so that's that December 2019 uh, statement. Um, on the second panel, John Van Osdall, who now leads the accounting group, um, and Diana Stolzfis also she leads the uh, professional practice group. They discussed their roles, their responsibilities again, the oversight of the FASB. They briefly discussed the agenda. Um. Also discussed the the PCOB and its strategic plan. Again, here just a heavy emphasis on their outreach efforts and, and of course, interactions with key stakeholders. I think. I think the interesting piece that they chatted about were just kind of where they're seeing consults. And they're, obviously, they get a lot of consults from the various offices and divisions of the agency. I think probably most notably, Courtfin. They do handle a lot of consults, at least the accounting group. They're getting questions still on the newer GAAP standards, such as revenue recognition, leases, CECL. And of course, they're continuing to get those questions on BizCom, derivatives, and, and hedging, among others. And then, you know, for the professional practice group, um, there's a lot of Diana mentioned that, that of course, they get a lot of questions on independence. I imagine that a lot of those, at least in the future, are going to be on the new uh, amendments to the uh, independence rule. And then, of course, they field a lot of questions on internal controls.
0: So then, Kyle, anything to highlight from the OCA's panels?
2: There are a few things. You know, I think really the importance uh, of understanding how COVID has impacted the control environment. And this has been a consistent message from the outset, but really understanding, you know, are there new controls in place and really understanding the kind of the the related disclosure considerations. The other point, I think that Diana May was just really, and and even Sagar, the importance of auditor independence and the involvement of all parties, that there's this shared responsibility and making that point that management, the auditor and audit committee are, are all equally sharing that responsibility. And and of course, the timely reporting of violations so they can adequately be addressed in a timely manner. The other piece that I think I've heard for years from OCA, which I think is a great point to stress is when they think about complex accounting matters, that they do push for and accept well-reasoned judgments. And I think in this COVID environment, I think that's something that people should really think about. I mean, of course, you know they, they've encouraged people to reach out to them with any questions. They really are just echoing the same message or similar message that we heard from the FASB and PCOB on their panels, which really is the importance of stakeholder interactions, collaboration, and transparency.
0: And then, Kyle, I'm sure that you were especially interested in hearing what your old friends and Cork Finn are up to. Uh, but maybe before we get into the details, I know there were some recent changes. So can you highlight those for the audience?
2: Sure. So, um, well, recently Bill Hinman did notify folks that he would be stepping down by the end of the year. So the division director will be will be leaving soon. There is a, a new chief accountant, Lindsay McCord, uh, was was named a uh, chief accountant of the division, and Pat Gilmore will continue in in his current role as deputy chief accountant. And, and both of them participated in the in the panel to discuss some of the the issues and the, the ongoing uh, activity in Corp Fin.
0: And then any indication from them of forthcoming guidance or at rulemakings that we should be waiting for?
2: That's a great question. I think that was one of the things that really stood out to me was, was the lack of guidance that they gave with respect to the new human capital disclosure requirements. They, they were pretty clear, at least Lindsay was pretty clear, that there would be no, no disclosure guidance forthcoming, um, at least in the immediate term. So companies are going to be on their own, I think, this upcoming 10K season. She did mention, though, the this was pretty interesting, that they continue to work on amendments to items 301, 302, and 303 of SK. And, and that is potentially a, a big impact because that could eliminate selective financial data. It could eliminate the quarterly data. It also could streamline and modernize some of the MDNA and a So really something to keep an eye on there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting on human capital. I was actually literally on our runway call today talking about the podcast and thinking that we should be putting a podcast out on this topic. So for our audience, uh, potentially more to come on that. Kyle, back to this conference, any discussion on COVID? Because I know it's another area where we're getting a lot of questions.
2: They did spend a lot of time um, on the topic. Their focus was on three key areas and the first of which is MDNA, the second is goodwill, and then non gap. With respect to MDNA, the staff is is focused on, you know, obviously on discussion of results and they've talked about how management is dealing with the challenges, how are they planning for uncertainties, also the discussions of liquidity. You know, the company's borrowing funds to help through these difficult times. How are they going to repay those funds? What what are their future prospects? You know, the staff has notice companies focused really on, on the short-term impacts of COVID and not the long-term. And I think it's unpredictable. I think most companies would say, we, we don't know. We all don't know. But I think they expect disclosures to evolve over time. And so I think take a step back each period and, and look at those disclosures. Um, with respect to goodwill impairment, it really, the focus was more on the early warning disclosures. And so th- there there is a section that a lot of people aren't aware of buried in the FRM, the Financial Reporting Manual for Court FIN, that provides guidance on disclosures for companies that have reporting units that are at risk for impairment. And so, when you don't have a significant cushion, you know, you got to provide disclosures in your critical accounting policies. And so, that's something the staff said they'd be looking for. They also said they're, that they're listening to earnings calls, they're reading the press, they're trying to understand how management is addressing or discussing the results or potential challenges they face. I um, mean, so when you think about, let's say, a particular business unit, if they're talking about having challenges there, they're going to expect the disclosures in the filing to be aligned. I guess the other piece on that is really, when you think about goodwill impairment or potential for impairment, they're going to look at the company's industry. Are their peers struggling? Are pieces of their business struggling? And they may comment on that. If they see a decline, a similar decline in a business, and they've seen their peers take impairment charges, they likely are going to ask those questions. And finally, on non-GAAP measures, I think that one, again, the reminder there is all non-GAAP roles they apply equally to adjustments you make for COVID-related issues. Um, so the staff's going to question anything that they that they find to be egregious. If there are adjustments that aren't attributable or directly attributable to COVID-19, or they're not incremental um, expenses, that that's something we're going to look at. The other thing they pointed out, which, which I found interesting because I haven't seen this yet, but these hypothetical adjustments uh, that are made rather than kind of adjustments of actual amounts. And so think about a situation where You've had lost revenue. So they're seeing companies that are trying to, or at least asking about making adjustments for that. And they've essentially said, we're going to flat out object to that because it's a hypothetical.
0: All right. Well, so it sounds like no surprise on the key takeaways here, which is one, make sure you are addressing COVID-19 head on in your MD&A and really talking about the impacts. And then obviously focused on disclosing reporting units that are at risk. And then finally, that the staff may challenge your non gap COVID related adjustments if, you know, they're not in compliance with the broader non gap rules. So again, kind of no surprise. Any examples though that you could give or that they might've talked about?
2: Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there were a few helpful examples. I think, you know, we've been getting a lot of these questions too. And um, I think, I think, you know some of the acceptable, and they actually went through and said, "Here are some acceptable adjustments and unacceptable adjustments." And so some of the acceptable adjustments they mentioned were essentially, you know, hey, if you have additional costs that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So you think,, Think of hazard pay. That think of adjustments that to remove costs for deep cleaning services. So sanitizing equipment. You know, if it's directly attributable to COVID, then then it would make sense. I think the important message there is that if this becomes your new normal, if you have these costs, then you expect them to recur down the road because it's just the way the world's going to be. Then that's something you need to consider and, and potentially maybe not adjust for in the future. And of course, the you know, unacceptable adjustments. He, again, I mentioned the lost revenue. You know, the other. is is removing costs related to bad debts or even seesaw related impacts by relying solely on COVID. I think the staff's view is it's gonna be really difficult to attribute it solely to COVID and that they're likely gonna push back on those types of adjustments.
0: I was in, um, I had a new experience today that I was in an office building and going to an appointment and the elevator had self-sanitizing elevator buttons. So apparently once you hit the button, it's self-sanitized. So it sounds like that would qualify for this adjustment, assuming was material, of course. <laughs> so, um, And then Kyle, how about anything unrelated to COVID that the staff will be focused on over the next year?
2: It was interesting. It's Part of the panel they have every year at FEI is kind of a common letter trend or, or kind of observations. And, and one of the approaches I think that I like that the staff does is they focus more on what they expect to see. And so um, it really was no surprise to me that they spent a lot of time talking about non gap measures uh, just generally across the board. And, and of course, metrics, they spent a lot of time on metrics. Again, it, it's clear the staff continues to make this clear, not only from you know, comma letters to companies, but also from you know interactions with them. They do not like adjustments to revenues. I mean, that's crystal clear, uh, and they're likely going to issue comments on that. What really stood out to me, I think, most was just their focus on labeling uh, of non-GAAP measures, how they're being titled, what companies are calling these particular measures and metrics. And so, um, some of the examples they gave were uh, gross billings examples. So, if you present revenues on a net basis, you know, net of discounts, allowances, or returns, concessions. You know, labeling that as gross revenues when, you know, the the top line number, they're not going to view that as appropriate because they don't view that as a a gap revenue number. And so they would basically say, hey, look, don't call it gross revenues or gross sales. You should probably call that gross billings. And so we're seeing some comments in in that space. They also are issuing comments, and they mentioned this as well, on, you know, adjusting revenues for costs. And so to the extent you're going to adjust for certain costs or direct costs, That's akin to a a margin. And so once you get to kind of a margin measure, you got to label it as a margin measure, not a, a net revenue but maybe a contribution margin title. And then of course, if you're gonna reconcile it to something, you would reconcile it to a fully loaded gap gross margin. So that's something else to to keep in mind. I think, you know, for metrics, their primary message there, and and this was really for joint message from Pat and Lindsay, was to focus on the 10K disclosures and reevaluate this upcoming 10K season and, you know, thinking about including the definition of the metric. Talk about how it's calculated or show the calculation. Why is it useful to investors? And then, you know, how does management actually use uh, the metric? I guess, kind of wrapping it all up, Lindsay did kind of close with a lot of important reminders on, hey, There's staff guidance out there on COVID, cybersecurity-related risks, LIBOR transition, and even human capital disclosures. When we think about disclosing stuff there, there's not a lot out there, but making sure that it's not boilerplate disclosure, that those disclosures are tailored to the company's specific facts and circumstances, to their industry, the jurisdiction where they operate. And so the staff absolutely is going to be looking at this in their upcoming 10k season so something to keep an eye on there too
0: it's helpful. so it's interesting to me listening to the two of you. I know you've both attended this conference in the past. what really stood out to me today though is that sounds like you didn't hear a lot new this year, which I think may be different than what we've seen before. And so I guess first of all is that a fair assessment of what I'm listening to and then secondly, are you willing to speculate as to maybe why? you know, we heard less new news.
2: It's likely because I'm not presenting there anymore. So that that's probably the sole reason. <laughs> Val,
1: <laughs> I think this was a good introduction session for Rich Jones and uh, Hillary are both new in their roles. So I think it's been a big year and we're coming off of a year of kind of the big three standards and there's a bit of fatigue in that regard. So I do agree there wasn't a lot that was new this year, but I think it, people were pretty happy with that.
0: Just thinking the same thing that from our listener perspective, they are probably happy, but there was nothing groundbreaking that, you know, we're saying is something new they have to do for year end. So I, I do think that is good news. So as you guys know, I always like to wrap up the podcast with something on the more positive or, or light note. And when we started doing these virtual podcasts with COVID, we were very focused on looking for silver linings and what we enjoyed from working at home. We got away from that, but considering the fact that you guys both just participated in a virtual conference, I thought it might be a fun time to revisit the question and say, what's something great about not going to the office so Val I'll just start with you
1: I think I'll take the bit of the obvious one in that that I live in New York and work in New Jersey so I'm perfectly happy not to have visited the Verrazano Bridge in about six months that is very fair and how about you Kyle
2: you know, considering I started with the firm in April and I still have not met either of you in person or pretty much most of my coworkers, I'd say it's been a bit challenging. I'd say the only positive is the fact that my dog, I have my puppy around. And so I have her to kind of keep me company because it definitely has been a challenge. But um, I, I would say the other thing is, it's, it's kind of nice sometimes to just wake up and Take a shower and and not have to get dressed up and in a nice you know nice suit. So that that's been also been a nice uh, nice treat.
0: All right. Well, again, both really appreciate the update and thanks for joining me today. Please join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. This Thursday will be the next episode in season two of our What's Next in Tech podcast series, and we'll be talking about cloud technology. If you've been enjoying the series, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.
1: This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.